This podcast contains explicit language, but it's probably not my fault. Don't worry, I'll talk to the other hosts. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of January 29th, 2024. On this week's show, we'll talk about how the Chiefs and 49ers made it to the Super Bowl, what we learned about Brock Purdy and Lamar Jackson, and whether Detroit Lions fans should be biting off Dan Campbell's kneecaps. Then the Washington Post's Ben Golliver will join us to discuss Luka Doncic's 73-point game, Joel Embiid's 70-pointer, and whether somebody in the NBA is going to break 100. I'm in Washington, D.C. I'm the author of The Queen. And like LSU Tiger turned Baltimore Raven Patrick Queen, I will not be attending the Super Bowl. Also in D.C. is Stefan Fatsis. He's the author of the books Word Freak, A Few Seconds of Panic, and Wild and Outside. How many Super Bowls have you been to, Stefan? Uh, I've only attended one. I've played in none. <laughs> I've only... Which one did you attend? I attended uh, John Elway flipping like a whirly gig in San Diego against the Green Bay Packers in 1997. For the journal? Yeah. Do you remember what you wrote? I did. I did a feature story um, leading up to the game about retired NFL players cashing in on Super Bowl week. Love it. Classic journal sports. Not about the game at all. (laughs) I know. I didn't have to write anything about the game. It was pre-daily Wall Street (laughs) Journal sports page. So, yeah. With us from the Bay Area, it's podcast host, writer, and power eye enthusiast, Joel Anderson. Have you ever been to the Super Bowl? I have not. I did attend Super Bowl festivities <laughs> the year that it was in New York, because uh-huh. I was at BuzzFeed News at the time and on the sports desk. So I don't even know if I had tickets to go to the game, but I got to cover, you know, media day and all that stuff. Little Terrio was there. If people remember Little Terrio, the internet sensation from... 10, 11 years ago. I have no idea who you're talking about. You don't remember Little Terrio? Based on Stevens' expression, he also has no idea who you're talking about. I do not. I, I was going to put out a call to our listeners, <laughs> but I'm, I'm just I'm just thinking. Now, there might not be that many people that are familiar with Little Terrio. But uh, anyway, if you guys find out who Little Terrio is, tweet at I'll have us. to educate myself. That's right. We want to thank our Slate Plus members. I'm guessing none of whom are playing in the Super Bowl, but maybe I'm wrong about that. Um, and this week, as we do... Every week, uh, we have a bonus segment for those subscribers. Coming up, we're going to talk about the writer Jeff Perlman's words of wisdom to young journalists that they should make themselves indispensable. Is that good advice? We will weigh in. If you want to hear that and bonus segments on other Slate shows, get ad-free listening for all Slate podcasts and support us. You need to be a Slate Plus member. To sign up, go to slate.com slash hangupplus. That's slate.com slash hangupplus. With six and a half minutes to go in the third quarter and his team up 24 to 10, Detroit Lions cornerback Kendall Vildor, amazing name, tracked a deep ball from San Francisco 49ers quarterback Brock Purdy directly into his face mask, at which point it bounced off and into the hands of Niners wide receiver Brandon Ayuk. It was the first big turning point in a game that swerved wildly in the second half, with San Francisco overcoming a 17-point halftime deficit to win 34-31 to and clinch a spot in the Super Bowl, where they'll play the Kansas City Chiefs. After the NFC Championship game, Ayuk explained uh, to Aaron Andrews of Fox how that catch happened. Before the game, a ladybug landed on my shoe. Come on. 
and y'all know what that means. So that's all I can say, because other than that, I don't know. I don't know. Just great luck. God was with us today. Great win. Bang, bang, Niner gang. It's crazy. First of all, bang, bang, Niner gang. Second of all, uh, Joel, did anything on your shoe help you predict the outcome of Sunday's games? And what did you make of the 49ers' big comeback and the Lions' shocking second-half collapse? The only thing I got on my shoe on Sunday was playground sand, and maybe it was apropos because maybe the Lions were seemingly running in sand uh, in the second half or something like that. But, you know, I was thinking about this as the game ended, and I realized Fox uh, had stopped showing scenes from Ford Field uh, (laughs) as the uh, NC Championship game wound down, right? And overall, like, I have some experience with this. As our listeners know, I was a Houston Oilers fan, And every year after some playoff disappointment, you figure that your favorite team will run it back next year. Like, why not? You know, you can talk yourselves into this every offseason. Your team has solid quarterback, young skill talent, one of the best offensive lines in the league, a coach who has led tremendous improvement every season, and a front office that's proven to be one of the best of the league. So it's reasonable to assume that your teams are just going to run it back. Like, if you're young and talented like the Lions, why wouldn't they? You could do it just like the 49ers did. Um, But Lions fans and Oilers fans know that football doesn't work like that. And, in fact, I'm old enough that I can remember the 1991 Lions team, the last one to advance that far in the playoffs, and they had Eric Kramer, Barry Sanders, Herman Moore, Chris Spielman, Benny Blades, Ray Crockett, all those dudes. And they they played close in the NFC Championship game and fell apart in the second half, and the thought was they're really young. They'll be back. And the next year they went 5-11, and 11, and it took them until this year to win another playoff game. So when that game ended in Santa Clara last night, I just felt a wave of sadness wash over me. Like, that's not a loss that's going to be part of a redemption story. That's a loss that haunts a franchise for a really long time. And everything was lining up for him. It was gone. And again, a lot of teams go through this. Remember those Mark Sanchez Jets teams, those Philip Rivers and Ladanian San Diego teams. Remember that year, Blake Bortles and the Jaguars seemed really young and really talented, and they almost beat the Tom Brady and the Pats, and you're like, oh, they'll probably be back. Like, they've got enough young talent to get back, and then it never happened. So I just thought, man, the Lions caught a lot of bad breaks from a couple of those drops on fourth and third down, that Brock Purdy pass that bounced off Vildor's helmet and into the arms of Brandon Ayuk, you know, our ladybug guy. And um, I know we're going to talk about fourth down conversion, Stefan, but um, I just feel like there was so much else that was working against the Lions on Sunday that um, it's kind of reductive to 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 focus it all on what Dan Campbell decided to do on fourth down because it just seemed like it slowly kind of got away from them down the stretch. Kind of quickly got away from them. I mean, they yeah. beat their asses in the first half. I mean, they dominated the 49ers in the first half. It was 24 to 7 at the break. Um, the Lions were running at will. They made a first down running, rushing on third and 12. They threw on third and 18 for a first down. They were just simply dominant. I said, I was sitting in, on my couch saying, oh my God, they're going to blow them out. And the second half just did not go that way, obviously. Um, the 49ers adjusted. They played better. And as you said, Joel, the Lions made a lot of mistakes. And whether it's fair or not to reduce the uh, criticism of Detroit to the fourth down calls that Dan Campbell made, uh, or whether it's fair to say he dropped a bunch of passes, um, they got a couple of bad breaks. I think it's all part of the equation. I mean, those fourth down calls were head scratching, to say the least. 
and maybe defensible in an analytical vacuum, but situationally, they just didn't make sense. Oh, that's interesting, Stefan, because most people and the stuff that we've been reading have kind of gone in the opposite direction and defending the Lions' fourth down decisions. And if you look at the context, I think there are a lot of reasons why they were defensible or even smart decisions. The Lions had converted 17 of 20 chances this year when it was fourth and three or less in opponent's territory. Um, Their kicker isn't amazing. It's not like a Justin Tucker type figure. So Badgley very well could have missed those field goals. And then, I mean, they didn't know this necessarily going in to the play, but like on on the first one, Josh Reynolds just dropped the ball. And then on the second one, it seemed like that was actually really good 49ers defense where Steve Mm -hmm. Wilkes, the defensive coordinator, tricked um, Jared Goff into thinking they were playing man and they were actually playing zone. Um, But so, yeah, what's your kind of rationale for thinking that it was a bad decision or not as defensible as everybody else is saying. I don't know. I think my rationale is that 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 you can kind of throw out the aggregate regular season statistics because of the situation that the Lions were in. They had an opportunity to go up three scores when they went for it and failed the first time. They would have been up 17 points instead of 14 points. And then the second opportunity Uh, Campbell chose to go for it on fourth and three instead of attempting a 48-yard field goal by Mike Badgley that would have tied the game. San Francisco went down the field. They were up 10, up two scores with very little time left. Um, So I think situationally, you know, I think there was a conservative argument to be made, not even conservative, that you go up three scores if you kick the field goal early in the third quarter, you tie the game instead of giving San Francisco the opportunity to go up two scores later in the game. And the criticism of Mike Badgley, the kicker, seemed a little misplaced to me. I mean, a lot of the numbers that have been thrown around have been Badgley's career numbers and he has become a much better kicker over the course of his career as have most nfl kickers in the last three seasons including this year's playoffs badgley made 19 of 23 kicks from between 40 and 49 yards 83 percent that's pretty good the overall average uh overall percentage make rate in the nfl this season was about 85 percent I mean, I guess, I mean, it's a 48 field goal, the 48 yard field goal is. In good weather not, conditions, this is not like they were playing in, in 20 degrees in Baltimore. They were in under more the pressure Bay Area. than he's ever been in in his entire life. Sure. I mean, and I think they say that the, the decision to kick is like statistically marginally more defensible than kicking it under that circumstance. And so I see what you're saying, Stefan, because I, I thought about it earlier in terms of like, all right, well, the thing about kicking a field goal is that there's not the huge momentum swing that it is when a team gets off the field after a fourth down conversion. And I know that that's like, I mean, that just sounds like voodoo compared to like the analytical analysis of football. But like, we've all watched enough football to know that when a team gets a stop on fourth down, it's a, you know, to the extent that you believe in momentum or whatever it is, like, you know, confidence, whatever, it can fuel a team. And it certainly seemed like the 49ers got a boost when the Lions had to turn it over on downs. But I also think that, like, the Lions got here because of that sort of play calling all like year you long. you adjust. So it's a different situation. If he had walked away from making those sorts of decisions and not showing faith 
in his team to make those fourth down conversions, it would totally be the antithesis of everything we liked about the Lions and everything we respect about. You know what I would have respected more is like making the Super Bowl is is the thing that you would have respected Dan Campbell for more. I mean, what's more aggressive being ahead 27 to 10 or 24 to 10 making San Francisco score three times or letting them score two touchdowns and tying the game. They erased that deficit in eight minutes. Boom. Look, I I think Benjamin Solak of The Ringer made the argument or made the point that for Detroit, the two plays in the game that if you look at kind of win expectation or point expectation cost them the most were Jim Heer Gibbs's fumble, which came immediately after, you know, they cut the lead to 24 to 17. And then um, the Ayuk reception off Vildor's face mask, which is what allowed them to Mm -hmm. get within seven points. I think this is just a classic case of where people argue about coaching decisions because it could have gone the other way. It's just like a you can put yourself in Dan Campbell's shoes. It's not really possible to argue like, man, Jameer Gibbs really shouldn't have fumbled. It's it's just a thing that happened. But, you know, was the chance that Josh Reynolds catches that ball on that fourth down greater or less than 83%? <laughs> like the cliche, right? You can I can just hear a color analyst in my head say that he catches that 99 out of 100 times. Is that actually true? Maybe he catches it 87 out of 100 times. I don't know. But uh, I think ultimately it's like a break-even thing. Again, look at the the various models, it is like basically 50-50. And then it's, do you trust Dan Campbell to know his team and the situation? Or do you trust Stefan Fatsis to know what's, uh, you know, the what what makes more sense for the Lions? I mean, I think I tend to like go towards Joel's argument. If you do something all year, they'd gone for it, I think, 20 out of 24 times. And then you like completely change during the playoffs. I think the players would be like, whoa, that seems weird. Like, is he like getting more conservative? Like, does he not actually believe that we can make it? And like, you can't calculate those things, right? And I think, again, if it's like a 50-50 proposition, it just doesn't honestly seem worth getting mad about it either way Mm. or like arguing about it. Yeah, no, I I, I absolutely agree. I just think it's, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I, I think the thing is that a lot of people are focusing on Dan Campbell and the Lions right now because we have two more weeks to deal with the 49ers, right? And so you kind of want to, you know, wrap a season up in a neat bow and say, well, what should the Lions have done? This is why they lost. And the reality is they lost for a combination of reasons. And some of them is that the 49ers in the second half were the team that everybody thought they were all year long. I mean, they played like the number one seed down the stretch. I mean, Brock Purdy, as infuriating as he is, um, came up, you know, and, and made enough plays. Like, I don't want to give him that that help. I mean, look, I mean, we all know that the helmet catches bullshit, right? <laughs> like the Brandon Ayuk thing, right? I mean, like, and and that was totally rocket fuel for the 49ers. It just seemed like everything started rolling for them after that. But, like, when you're a good team, sometimes you catch those breaks. Like, if you're still in the game, you you benefit from those breaks. And, um, you know, Christian McCaffrey was as good as I can remember him being, he only had 90 yards, but like it felt like every yard he rushed for was important in that game, that it like proved some sort of point. Um, and, and Debo Samuel had been out and came back and played great. Yeah, man. So, I mean, like at the end of the day, I mean, the 49ers showed us who they were. Like, you know, they were as good as everybody said they were. 
And they're certainly a worthy Super Bowl team. And sometimes the breaks just don't go your way, Lions fans. And, uh, you know, I'm sorry. I hope it comes your way again. But uh, let's let's be honest. We know <laughs> we, we know what your history is. Up next, we're going to talk about how the Chiefs beat the Ravens. In the other game on Sunday, the AFC Championship, uh, Patrick Mahomes went on the road and beat Lamar Jackson and the Baltimore Ravens 17-10. to Stefan, it was a pretty exciting first quarter from an offensive standpoint. Long drive by the Chiefs, and then Lamar Jackson had an amazing scramble and then a long uh, touchdown pass to Zay Flowers. Then after that, this game was a slog. Um, the Chiefs did go on another, I think, nine-minute drive mm-hmm. after that. Um, that was the only other touchdown in the game. But I guess we can start in one of two ways. Like Patrick Mahomes, that guy, uh, four Super Bowls now in his mm-hmm. first six seasons. Pretty incredible. And then Lamar Jackson, another playoff disappointment. Yeah, Mahomes is now 14-3 and three in the postseason. He's already only behind Joe Montana, 16 wins in playoffs, and uh, Tom Brady, 35. Mahomes is not 30 yet. He will start four Super Bowls before turning 30. No one has done that before. I mean, what Pat Mahomes has shown us, Joel, is that he is the best quarterback in a league that has a lot of really good quarterbacks. I mean, look at what the Chiefs did in the last two weeks. They went to Buffalo. Josh Allen was fantastic. They still managed to win. They went to Baltimore. Lamar Jackson was okay after an absolutely spectacular MVP season. And we can get into some of Jackson's numbers over the course of this year and how he did that. Um, But the Chiefs go to Baltimore and Patrick Mahomes does just enough to win this game, a low scoring game, which none of us were expecting, especially after that first quarter. Um, That alone, I mean, in a season that we were saying, you know, six, eight, nine weeks ago, eh, Chiefs don't look that great. looks like it might be Lamar Jackson's year. Or, whoa, what a, what, a, what a final stretch run by Josh Allen and the Bills. And here we are again with Mahomes and all of his TV commercials back in the Super Bowl. Yeah, man, it's just crazy because, I mean, the conversation before the game was that this is one of the best, not just one of the best Raven teams of recent vintage, but one of the best NFL teams of recent vintage. Like, they were dominant. Like, they beat up playoff teams this year. Um, they, you know... I mean, they both of the teams in the NFC Championship game, like, they destroyed, right? And so it was reasonable to think that this was their year. And this is what I kind of come back to, like, it connects to the, the Lions fans for me is that, you know, when will the Ravens have it better than this? They're at home. This is one of the, this is probably the worst Chiefs team in the last six years that Mahomes has been starting. You've got a guy that's the presumptive two-time MVP, one of the best defenses ever, home field advantage, and you lose, man. And not only that, like, I don't know about you guys, and Josh, you tell me, I never felt like the Ravens were in control of the game. And in fact, I thought, like, people are saying, oh, the Ravens, you know, shut down the Chiefs in the second half. And I think that there's something to that. But I also think that the Chiefs just stopped 
taking chances. They were like, you know what? We're choking them out right now. Let's not do the Dan Campbell thing. Let's not do anything that might, you know, give them a spark, give them a, a needless break. Let's not take any chances because our defense is handling them right now. And it just kind of, it is like the, the Ravens went quietly into the night. It didn't seem like they had as much fight as you'd expect from a team that was allegedly as great as they were to me. Both teams' early touchdowns came after fourth down conversions. I guess they just should have punted uh, in both cases, and it would have been <laughs> 10 to 3 uh, instead of 17 to 10. But, you know, this game is a testament to what even, um, you know, ev- even the greatest quarterbacks in the game can, in this era, still be stymied by great defenses, two of the best, I think the two best statistically in the league. And I, I think there's something to the fact that the Chiefs played differently with the lead and seeing how effective their game plan, you know, Steve Spagnolo famously, um, you know, shut down the 2007 Patriots with the Giants, just really seemed to flummox the Ravens and Lamar Jackson. Bill Barnwell's analysis for ESPN was interesting because um, he kind of split between giving credit to the Chiefs for taking away the intermediate passing game and doing, you know, all sorts of things that they're able to do because they have a stronger secondary than, you know, for instance, the Houston Texans. But there was also, I think, a point that he made that was really striking to me Gus Edwards had three carries. I mean, the whole kind of superpower of the Ravens' offense, Stefan, and the superpower of a quarterback who can run the ball is that he makes the entire running game better. I mean, the Ravens, ever since Lamar Jackson came in the league, have had an amazing running game. And the Bills were running the ball all over the Chiefs last week. I I see Brian Baldinger on Twitter mentioned that the Ravens only called two runs for Lamar Jackson all game long. Two. Like, he had more runs than that because those are scrambles off pressure or whatever. But they only called two runs for the most dynamic quarterback running threat in the league. So it's clear that they, like, got out of their game pretty quickly. Yeah, and Josh Allen will recall ran, I don't know how many, but it did seem like there were designed runs for Allen that worked the previous week in Buffalo. I mean, the contrast between the running by Lamar Jackson and by Brock Purdy was pretty stark. I mean, Purdy would go back, not find anyone open, and like run for a first down. Lamar would go back, look, 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 look. (laughs) And then by the time he tried to scramble, he was running for his life. Like there were very few instances for, you know, both of you guys where it seemed like Lamar didn't see his first read and then took off. Right. Uh, Barnwell pointed out that Jackson held the ball for more than four seconds on 13 dropbacks. He was four of nine on those, but also four sacks. That seemed very uncharacteristic. Um, And I don't know whether that was designed, whether that was nerves, um, but something felt off about Jackson's willingness to take off exploit the gap between the line and the secondary and do what he does. Right. And can't we just say, like, there is reason to critique Lamar. I mean, he is the two-time MVP and whatever. But, like, the Chiefs, by all rights, had the second-best defense in the league all year long. And they were really not that far behind the Ravens, like, if you tally up, like, you know, all their season's numbers or whatever. So it's, it is just possible that 
Lamar Jackson and the Ravens played against a defense that was, you know, a class ahead of anybody else they'd faced all year long. And we saw that, right? And and again, I guess, I mean, the subtext of this is that, and everybody's kind of been talking about it on the internet, is that, you know, <laughs> Lamar Jackson is black. I think if you all watch football, you may have noticed that. And the criticism about him and his ability to play NFL quarterback from the pocket has always been an ongoing argument, a debate. Like the, the narrative is that, oh, you know, this guy is sort of a, you, you know, he's an athlete playing quarterback and not a quarterback who's an athlete. And so I think, you know, uh, there are people, including me, I have to admit my bias here that like I'm, I, I don't like the criticism over, over, overly harshly in, 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 in public, but, um, facts are facts is that the Chiefs were a much better team they had the advantage on defense and that Lamar didn't play well and actually I was looking up like I don't believe in quarterback wins or whatever as a stat but man like Matthew Stafford Jared Goff like they've got more playoff wins that Baker Mayfield has as many playoff wins as Lamar Jackson man so it's just when you think about that stuff it's just like well man like you don't want to I don't I don't believe that Lamar Jackson will never get it done but I can he gave a lot more life to the critics who say that style of football won't work against the elite teams, I think. And that's kind of the disappointing thing, at least for me. And let's also not forget, Josh, that the Ravens also shot themselves in their foot. There were a lot of penalties, a too many men on the field penalty and unsportsmanlike conduct penalty. Um, and of course, Zay Flowers, with inches from tying the game, did the thing that football players are taught not to do and which we saw the previous shit, week happen, which is dive for the goal line with the ball outstretched. But it was Sneed. a great play by Lejarius. Lejarius need amazing play by Lejarius. Unbelievable. 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 After yeah. having been taunted by Zay Flowers <laughs> mere, mere seconds before. I mean, the Chiefs had a touchdown called back on what was kind of a bullshit holding penalty on a screen pass. I mean, we can play this game sure. all day. I think if if you play that game back, you know, 10 times, I think the Chiefs probably win nine of them, just based on... Mm -hmm. I don't think this was a game where it was breaks really did in the Ravens. And I think context always matters. Like, I grew up, or I was an adult, but I saw Drew Brees lead a whole bunch of Saints teams to seven and nine seasons because the defense was trash. And then I saw them do really well when they had a great defense. I mean, this was a Chiefs team that was buoyed by their defense. But I would also say that context doesn't particularly matter to Patrick Mahomes compared to every other quarterback right. in the league. I mean, the whole storyline this year was that his receivers couldn't catch. Um, you know, Marcos Valdez-Scantling makes a great catch on that last. Um, but that was maybe like, I guess Rasheed Rice made a few plays, but like this was a bad Chiefs receiving core. You saw what happened to Tom Brady in his final years in New England when they had a bad receiving core. I mean, nobody um, except it seems Patrick Mahomes can you know be immune from from contact. So we can say all of that stuff about Lamar Jackson, but if you're you know what he's going to be a multiple time MVP, and you're gonna you know, be compared to Patrick Mahomes, he just hasn't been as good. Mm -hmm. Whether it's because he is, isn't as good or just hasn't played as well when it matters, um, you know, it would be nice if you were in the NFC because that way you wouldn't have to go up against, like, you know, I don't think we'd be talking about Brock Purdy being in the Super Bowl 
Um, you know, it's ridiculous yep. to me that the 49ers have been favored. I'm just having a hard time imagining Purdy going up against that Chiefs defense and us coming out at the end being like, wow, Brock Purdy really made the the Chiefs and Steve Spagnolo look stupid. He really out outplayed them out there. <laughs> or going up against the Ravens defense or going up against the Bills. I mean, arguably the three best teams in the NFL were in the AFC this year. And, you know, you mentioned the receivers, Josh. Travis Kelsey did not have a great season by Travis Kelsey standards. He played phenomenally on Sunday. And throughout the playoffs. All right, my final thought is, uh, does anybody remember this from uh, 2003? I think what we've had here is little social concern in the NFL. The media has been very desirous that a black quarterback do well. There's little hope invested <laughs> in McNabb, and he got a lot of credit for the performance of this team that he didn't deserve. The defense carried this team. That was Rush Limbaugh on ESPN about Donovan McNabb in 2003. And the context was the Donovan McNabb had been, I'm reading from the ESPN article about this, had been to three straight Pro Bowls and two consecutive NFC Championship games and was runner-up for NFL MVP in his first full season as a starter. Still, commentator Rush Limbaugh saw fit to question the quarterback's credentials. And based on what I saw from the, you know, the Clay Travises of the world, in 2024, the perspective, even though we've just come such an, a tremendous distance in terms of who plays quarterback in the NFL in the last 20 years, the commentary is very similar about how, you know, the media just really wants Lamar Jackson to do well. And he's this, you know, multiple time MVP, but, you know, it's all because of, you know, the context and the, the team that he's been good and he's just overrated. It just struck me as a pretty interesting parallel and in that it shows kind of how far we've come, but also how kind of exactly the same the analysis is. Yeah, I mean, that regressive analysis has always been there. It's the same kind of analysis that, again, had suggested Lamar Jackson should run routes at the NFL Combine when he was, you know, the Heisman Trophy winner, right? So that'll never go away. And I mean, that's why, you know, people like me are going to be extra sensitive when you criticize Lamar Jackson, because sometimes I just want to know where it's going to go. But that's that's the thing, right? It's that not every black athlete is going to be amazing in every big game. I guess it's one way to put it. And like, I think the grain of truth is that I think those of us who recognize racism in the way that this position has been discussed and analyzed and opportunities have been given, we do root for Lamar Jackson or a guy like Donovan McNabb, but we root for them because they're great and great players lose every fucking year. That's just what happens in sports. And so there's always going to be fodder for, you know, whether it's, you know, Colin Kaepernick lost in the Super Bowl or whatever, there's always going to be a black quarterback or a black athlete who, you know, conservative white people don't like. And that's always, till the end of time, it's going to provide this kind of fodder. Well, you know, I also believe in cross-racial uh, solidarity. <laughs> and you know who else I defended uh, vigorously from criticisms that they were bad in the playoffs and they weren't cracked up to what they were? Everybody's favorite Republican, Peyton Manning. So, you know, that, that, that used to dog him for years as well. So, yeah, I mean, you know, people can be dumb uh, across racial lines when it comes to this. But with Lamar, like, there's a history that comes with it. So, yeah, man, I, I hate that he lost. But, hey, man, if you still want to root for a black quarterback, still got some... <laughs> 
Pat Mahomes, you know what I'm saying? And we'll see Pat Mahomes Sr. So there's, there's still something for, for all of us uh, coming up here. Up next, The Washington Post, Ben Golliver on Luka Embiid and whether we're going to get a 100-point game in the NBA. On March 2nd, 1962, in Hershey, Pennsylvania, Wilt Chamberlain, then of the Philadelphia Warriors, scored 100 points against the New York Knicks. Only one local radio station broadcast the game, and only the fourth quarter call survives. The Library of Congress a few years ago added it to its national recording registry, which is pretty cool. Here's Bill Campbell, the announcer, with the climactic moment. Rogers throws long to Chamberlain. He's got it. He's trying to get up. He shoots. No good. The rebound, Luckenbill. Back to Chamberlain. He shoots. Up. No good. In and out. The rebound, Luckenbill. Back to Ruckwick. Into Chamberlain. A dipper dunk. Wilt was the dipper, of course. It should also be noted that Wilt had been up all night partying with a lady friend in New York before sleepless and hungover, taking an 8 a.m. train to Philadelphia and then the team bus to Hershey. I bring up Wilt because current NBA stars are scoring a lot of points. Just last week, Luka Doncic of Dallas had 73, tied for the fourth most in a game ever, and Joel Embiid of the 76ers had 70. Those were just the 14th and 15th 70-point games in league history, and Donovan Mitchell and Damian Lillard recorded the 12th and 13th last season. Ben Golliver also is a volume shooter. He covers the NBA for the Washington Post and co-hosts the NBA podcast, Greatest of All Talk. Hi, Ben. Hi, Stefan. So what's up with this spate of ridiculous individual scoring games? Statistical anomalies, or are we looking at a trend? Well, it's definitely a trend, and I'll lay out why. But I think even more than that, I want to sell this hard. This, to me, feels like we're reaching kind of a moment uh, for the soul of the game, the soul of the NBA game. Because what we've seen over these last 10 years, and I use that framework because you know 2015 was the the first year of the Golden State Warriors championship run where they really changed how basketball was played professionally, has seen a number of major, major structural changes to the sport that has led to these gigantic scoring performances and, in my opinion, has potentially turned off some viewers or at least led to a debate about whether this is healthy for the NBA. So just some quick stats, first of all. Uh, Ten years ago, the average score for each team in a game was 101. That's now up to 115. All right. The average number of three-pointers attempted 10 years ago was 22. That's now up to 35. The average number of possessions in a game 10 years ago was 94. That's now up to 99. Um, You look at the average uh, for the leading score in the NBA 10 years ago was 32. That's now up to 36. And you look at the number of players who averaged 25 points in a game 10 years ago, there was only five. Now there's 18, almost one on every single team, right? So there's clear inflation all across the board. 
And three things are driving it. I mean, first of all, more three-pointers, obviously. Steph Curry makes a bunch. They win titles. Everybody wants to shoot a lot of three-pointers. The second thing has been pace of play. I think for teams with less talent, they realize to try to increase the randomness to get up and down the court. um, You know, you've got to play faster to try to beat teams with better talent. And you've seen that become, uh, you know, a, you know, part of the pace and space era, as it's, it's described. And the third thing is the consolidation of the ball with superstar players. We've seen usage rates among the very best players uh, really uptick. You know, they're just getting the ball more often. It's become this efficient way to score. So players like Joel Embiid and Luka Doncic have a way greener light than maybe the stars of even 10 years ago and certainly compared to 20 years ago. So the good aspects of this development is, you know, typically people do like scoring. It's fun to go watch these games. Um, you know, it's fun to be able to say, hey, I saw somebody score 50 points. I saw someone score 70 points. Uh, it generates some social media buzz. But I do wonder if kind of the other shoe has dropped here because we've had four 70 point games here since last January, uh, five since 2017. In the previous 20 years, Kobe Bryant was the only person who reached that threshold. And it's one of those deals where, you know, everybody likes cake, but nobody eats cake for dinner every single night. And has the NBA kind of gorged itself on this scoring boom where you're not seeing television ratings explode along with the scoring? Have people gotten maybe, uh, you know, uh, a little uh, tuned out, I guess, to the excitement? When Booker had 70 points um, in 2017, that was like a week-long story in the NBA. Lucas scored 73, I think, on Friday night. And uh, I'm glad you guys are still talking about it on Monday, but most of everybody else in the sports world has certainly moved on to Taylor Swift and whatever else is going on, right? Well, I'm just sort of curious. So uh, from what you just said, players have gotten so much more efficient in scoring. They're so much more skilled. The The best players have the ball more, which seems to be a good thing. But also, people seem to be complaining about it, to your point. Like, as soon as those games were over, you could go on social media and you'd see people, oh, this is, you know, blah, blah, blah. So you've seen these games. Like, aesthetically, what do they look like? Because you think it's great if Luka Doncic had the ball all goddamn time. Like, that seems like you'd rather that than, like, somebody else. But it doesn't seem like it's translating into more beautiful ball. But what have you seen out of this? Well, all those developments I'm describing, the more three-pointers, the faster play, the consolidating the ball with the star players are all smart developments. Those are really intelligent general managers crunching numbers, often turning to analytics and deciding this is the best way for us to play, uh, to rack up wins. And, you know, it, it as a byproduct to have star players score lots of points. Um, you know, the counter to those trends, though, has been de- how defenses act in the NBA, right? So now you have to cover a lot more different distance side to side as opposed to just protecting the paint. Now you're pulling out your big men on the perimeter and asking them to guard guards more often and to contest three point shots more often than they used to have to do. So you've seen kind of a change in the shape of NBA players. Um, you know, now you get guys like Jonas Valanciunas, who are the big, traditional, big bodied centers. And those guys are sort of last of a dying breed, right? The younger centers look maybe more like uh, Anyeka Akongwu from the Atlanta Hawks, where they're very thin, very mobile. They're moving all over the court. They're not asked to do as many things um, physically as defensive players were 10 years ago. So when you're stretching defenses to the side and away from the basket, you're creating a lot more easy opportunities in the paint. And for talented scorers like Luka and Joel Embiid, you're also creating a lot more opportunities for those guys to get fouled by defenders that can't handle them, right? So it's no coincidence at all that these guys are shooting 10, 15, sometimes 20 free throws 
in their biggest scoring outputs. So I, that's why I say it's a soul of the game moment for the NBA. You guys remember, you know, kind of after Jordan retired, how ugly the games were. There's no exciting players. And so the NBA came in and kind of legislated excitement into the game by saying, you can't hand check anymore. We're going to have more freedom of movement. We're going to try to increase um, the offense's ability to score so we don't get NBA finals games that are like, you know, 90 to 86, right? Nobody's tuning in. Nobody's watching. And I think the NBA needs to step in here and rein the offense back in a little bit. I don't know if, you know, 116 to one, uh, you know, on the average, you know, that's just too high because that means you're getting a lot of 130s, a lot of 140s. And I don't think fans, you know, love that style of play. I would bring up the idea that when the scores reach that high, you're more likely to have blowouts. You're more likely to get, say, the Boston Celtics versus the Miami Heat last Thursday where Boston wins by 30 points. And there's more people watching LSU's women basketball team, which I'm sure Josh loved, than we're watching that major showdown of the Eastern Conference finalists, right? So um, I think if you're reigning scoring back in, you're probably going to get more competitive games than you've had recently. You're probably going to lose some of these big scoring nights in the process, but hopefully you're getting a, a, a game where you've got more two-way competition and the defense has a chance because right now on a lot of nights, including Lucas' scoring night, the defense didn't have a chance. You watch the highlights. I mean, you know, in some cases, it feels like they're not even trying. And I think the NBA should be the ones who kind of uh, restore that balance. Well, one factor that you didn't mention is that there's a handful, I think five of historically bad teams this year. And many of those these scoring performances have come against those historically bad teams. And a lot of the reason why they're bad is that they play no defense. The Hawks, I guess, are more of like a middle tier team but they offered no resistance to Luca in that game that I saw. But, you know, and then there's the other factor, which I don't think you mentioned either, which is that players are better now than they've ever been in terms of offensive skill. And so when you have that combination of on certain nights, you know, maybe Kyrie Irving isn't playing, um, maybe Anthony Edwards is sick. And so, you have one superstar player soaking up all of the offense in a game against a historically bad team, then I think you might see a historic output. But I don't know, Ben. I mean, it seems like the regular these regular season games, like I tuned in to the fourth quarter of the Luka game and of the Embiid game and of the Cat game because I wanted to see if they were going to put up a record scoring amount. They got one more viewer than they would have otherwise oh, that's for good. Wolves, Hornets, Mavs, Hawks, whatever. Do you think that maybe a kind of all-in-one solution here is make the regular season shorter? That way, every game takes on a little more importance. Maybe every team plays harder. Maybe you don't get a situation um, where Embiid sits out against Jokic and Denver for the fourth or fifth straight season. Because otherwise, I'm finding it hard to feel like lament, oh man, if only this like Hornets-Wolves game would have been like 95 to 93, that would have been so much better for the NBA. No, there's a sweet spot in between where I think that you're you're accomplishing both goals in my mind. I, you know, I think that if you have one, you know, games in the one 
05 to 115 range on most nights, you're probably okay. When you're getting the 130s, I do think you're getting people to tune out and be, it just, you know, they roll their eyes. I remember there was a huge burst of excitement around the Warriors when they first started putting up these amazing scoring performances uh, because it was really pretty basketball because Steph Curry was so fun. But you look at the ratings, it's been in a dramatic, I don't want to call it free fall, but it's been noticeably down since that initial excitement around them. I don't only want to blame the weak sisters of the poor in the San Antonio Spurs here, though, because don't forget, Cat, you know, his 62-point game, they lost, right? Uh, you look at Devin Booker's 70-point game, his team lost. And this is not always just a function of, oh, you're beating up on terrible teams. Uh, I think that defense is definitely harder. I also don't like this argument that, um, oh, it's just so many talented players in the NBA now, so we, we have to just assume that this will happen all the time. Yes, every once in a while, but... Um, you look at playoff scoring, for example, when teams are really locked in and trying, you're, the numbers are significantly lower for team scoring, for individual scoring in the playoffs than they are during the regular season. We haven't seen one of these 70-point performances uh, you know, in the playoffs because you're going to see adjustments. You're going to see teams take it more seriously. The length of the schedule is the most compelling point uh, because what the NBA said, and they know they've got a problem with the regular season because one of their executives, Joe Dumars, came out in October and said, look, this is an 82 game regular season. We expect everybody to play hard every single night. And we expect you to be out there if you're a star level player and not skip games like MB did. And I think what happens when that's your approach, if you can't manage your energy and your ability on a night to night basis anymore, because you're no longer allowed to take off nights per NBA league rules, you tend to manage your energy within a game. And I think there's a slight degradation in the quality of those games. And usually that comes through on the defensive end. So I just think it's become a little bit too easy uh, for, for scores. Uh, you know, I, the Hawks played terrible defense. The Spurs didn't even really seem to make too many adjustments against Embiid. They were just fine with it. And I don't like to see that. I want to see some pushback. And I think the NBA could change some of their rules specifically around the amount of contact that's allowed in the paint and around the basket area. Uh, so many more fouls are called in those situations in NBA games compared to FIBA tournaments or the Olympics. And it doesn't need to be like that. You know, you can allow a more physical game. You can allow defenders to, to get away with more. You could potentially change the illegal defense rules to allow uh, teams a little bit more freedom in terms of how they protect the paint. All of those things could maybe give defenses a better chance right now, because at this point on the average NBA game, um, you know, they're just completely overwhelmed. Josh, you mentioned that Embiid sat out uh, against the Nuggets uh, a few days ago, and it was a late scratch. They said there was something wrong with him, but, you know, it looked like that might have been a good game for them to take off. Tyrese Maxey and Tobias Harris were already out. Embiid could have used a blow, it sounds like. Um, and the not great for the league. Marquee matchup, fan audience. You're right about that, Ben. I mean, people would not be tuning into that game once they heard that Embiid wasn't playing. Um, I, I DVR'd having... the game, and then when I heard Embiid didn't play in it, I deleted it off my DVR without, <laughs> without watching it. Does that count as watching it if you've actually <laughs> recorded it? Does the, does you get does the NBA get that click? So Embiid sitting out during what is one of the greatest seasons since Wilt in 1961-62. He may not even qualify for the MVP award because of a new NBA rule saying that you got to play 65 games. I mean, Ben, does any of that matter? I mean, are the Sixers right to just manage Joel Embiid the way they can? If Joel Embiid doesn't care about winning the MVP, who cares? Their goal is to do better in the playoffs than they've done historically. 
So I thought Embiid had an almost unhealthy obsession with winning the MVP last year. I mean, he was doing tons of interviews. It was a real media campaign. And given that he had never won anything in the playoffs before, it's like, hey, man, like, are you putting the cart before the horse here? Are you caring a little bit too much about your individual accomplishments rather than your team's success? Once he won the MVP after finishing a close second a couple of times, and once his team struggled in the playoffs, it felt like he came back this year with a totally different tune. I mean, he mm -hmm. said it after he scored 70. He's like, look, this doesn't matter. It's cool to be up there with Will but what really matters is team success. So I loved hearing that from Embiid. And I think Philadelphia's best chance at getting that kind of team success is managing Embiid's season, whether the NBA uh, allows that or disallows that. We should point out he banged knees, I think it was a, a night or two nights before that Denver game, uh, and he was down on the court in some significant pain. I feel like the real error here was almost like a paperwork deal for Philadelphia. They should have listed him on their injury report coming out of that game, knowing that he had banged knees, knowing that he had been in pain. And that way, if they did need to scratch him, you know, there's a paper trail saying like, look, this guy's dealing with something. What really upset everybody was that he was not on the injury report. Everyone assumed we were getting this major showdown until like 15 minutes before tip off. And so if you're, let's say, gambling on this game, if you're like Josh, you've DVR'd the game, everyone has this anticipation built up. And then it's just like, sorry, we're ripping this away from you. It's a terrible look for the league. I'm sure they will investigate the circumstances around that. I would not be surprised at all if the 76ers are fine for that situation. There are allowances in, in some cases, you know, for things happening right before the game. Because th sometimes things do happen before a game. Remember when uh, Wembenyama sprained his ankle on the ball boy's foot? Like, there's no way for the Spurs to have known that was going to happen, right? But this felt a little bit different, and I think it will draw the wrath of the league office. If this one doesn't, I don't know what would be a, a very clear violation of their new policy around player participation. So hopefully they crack down on that one. You know, been so many people were complaining about, you know, uh, Embiid not playing that it's sort of, I almost forgot that the Lakers and the Warriors were going to play after that. And <laughs> I mean, it seems to have been... It had the elements of everything that people, it was a high scoring game, old stars, like not the young stars of the league. And like it ended really late too, right? Because it was the West Coast. Ben didn't um, see the end of the game because once the teams passed 110 points, he just turned it off and discussed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, this is outrageous. This is outrageous. This is not basketball. But no, I mean, I, I'm just sort of curious. Like, so did you think that game, like that, that Braun Steph rivalry, the latest edition of it, is it, is, is that actually good for the NBA? Because it seemed like that was high quality, you know, closely contested, contested basketball, even though like, Clearly, the scoring got a little out of control there. So I actually did see the game, and Stefan will appreciate this. My mom was in town, so I was playing Scrabble against my mom, who's unreal. <laughs> she's not on your level, but she's definitely above my level. While watching, you know, in my lap, the uh, the overtime periods of the uh, Warriors-Lakers. Look, nobody complains about 130 games when it's 130-128. Every single possession late is close. And, and certainly, I wouldn't be complaining about the show those guys put on. Steph with some amazing threes. You could tell his frustration coming off of the court. But this is almost another kind of question for the NBA is how long can LeBron and Steph carry this thing, right? Like when they're when every time you have these major weekend showcase games, invariably it feels like it's the Lakers or the Warriors. And in some cases, it's the Lakers versus the Warriors, right? And so um, that does feel like a little bit of an issue. You look at the number of uh, under 30, especially American stars in this year's All-Star Game. I mean, you've got uh, Tyrese Halliburton um, as a starter. I mean, it's just a very short list of guys who are there kind of ready to, to take the, um, you know, to, to take the reins from 
the LeBron, the Steph, and the uh, you know Kevin Durant generation. And you know, I do think you know for the NBA, they really have to start thinking you know forward looking about where does this go for the next five to ten years? Because if scoring's at one fifteen right now. Do they want it to be 120 in five years? Do they want it to be 125 in five years? At what point do they look at, you know, kind of the television interest that's been generated and say, like, we're not even close to where we thought they would be, you know, back when people were saying, you know, the NBA should be a real challenge for football. I do think the ratings would go up if there was fewer games because the games would feel more special. I think the games would go up if we had more two-way tension, like I was describing earlier. I think people would be more invested in that. And I do think the playoff product for the NBA is actually still excellent. You know, I mean, very rarely do you just get complete duds, especially when you're out of the uh, the first round of the playoffs. That's when the competition level is raised the highest, when the energy level is the highest. But what I think we've learned here during this season where the NBA has tried to force players to be out there every Every single night is they can't maintain the type of competitive intensity that we're hoping for 82 times a year before the playoffs. It's, it's just an unrealistic ask and something has to give. All right. Very quickly, then can someone score 101 points in a game in the NBA? Oh, yeah, for sure. Definitely. And I would not have said that three or four years ago. But at this point, like, why would I think that was impossible? You know, I mean, all the treads are saying if you're going to be chasing it as uh, desperately as the Timberwolves chase 62 for cat where they turn their entire game plan over and wound up costing them the game. um, Yeah, I I think it's totally possible. You can imagine a situation where a guy comes out and has 60 at halftime and his team, you know, just, you know, goes after it with sole focus. And, uh, you know, I'm actually a little bit afraid of that happening. I'm not ready for it. I grew up thinking 100 was untouchable and it definitely is not any longer. My cat did break uh, Roger Maris's record with 62. So there was that. (laughs) Ben Golliver covers the NBA for the Washington Post. You can listen to more of him on Greatest of All Talk, to which you should subscribe. Ben, thanks a lot for coming back on the show. Thanks for having me, guys. Now it is time for After Balls, sponsored by Bennett's Prune Juice, endorsed by Kenny Sailors, who says it was okay. The first Grand Slam on the tennis calendar is complete, so now I'm going to grace you slash bore you with my thoughts. On the women's side, Arena Sabalenka of Belarus won her second straight Australian Open and second major overall, beating China's Qinwen Zhang in straight sets in the final. The tournament was pretty much a total romp for Sabalenka, who won six of her seven matches by the following scorelines. 6061, That match was a disappointment for Coco by her own admission. Uh, She's coming off her first major win at the U.S. Open and came into the season looking a lot physically stronger, and she was armed with an improved serve after working a bit with America's last male Grand Slam winner, Andy Roddick. But Coco's serve and her occasionally balky forehand uh, both let her down against Sabalenka, who she had beaten in that U.S. Open final. Goff had eight double faults and just four forehand winners in the whole match, compared to Sabalenka at 19. Um, And Sabalenka at the moment has the best serve forehand combo on tour. 
But these things can change very quickly. Uh, in 2022, Sabalenka had 428 double faults on the season. That was more than 100 more than anyone else on the women's tour. She got that straightened out, and now um, she's right up at the top of the rankings with Iga Swiatek. I actually came away from the semifinal last week more optimistic about Coco's short and long-term prospects, given that she was able to hang so close to a player who's on a dominant run, despite really not playing well in that match. Then on the men's side, I want to start with the semifinals, where uh, the big results of the tournament was Yannick Sinner beating Novak Djokovic, who had won 5,000 Australian Opens in a row, had a match-winning streak of uh, you know more than 30, only interrupted by that whole uh, COVID vaccine situation that I think we might remember. Djokovic <laughs> didn't really look like himself all tournament. He would profess to be sick. I'm not sure what was going on with that. But Sinner um, is 22 years old. Italian's been a kind of up-and-comer for the last few years, just imposed his will on Djokovic in a way that we haven't seen on the Grand Slam level, level in a really long time. And I'm going to make a kind of broad general statement that I think Joel will agree with here. Um, Djokovic won uh, three Grand Slams last year. He's, you know, zoomed past Federer and Nadal. But I think when you look back at certain dominant athletes' careers, you wouldn't have guessed when their last championship was or when their last title was, unless it's like a Michael Jordan case where it's like explicitly mm. a last dance. Like we could, I'm not saying it's likely or even, you know, probable, but it's possible that Djokovic will never win another Grand Slam title again. I mean, I think it's looking extremely likely that the next great rivalry in tennis will be Yannick Sinner versus Carlos Alcaraz. They already played an unbelievable match at the U.S. Open where Sinner had a match point. Alcaraz came back to win um, and then won his first Grand Slam at that U.S. Open. Sinner's uh, incredibly charismatic guy, um, likable guy, charming guy, um, redhead. There was, in the final against Daniil Medvedev, he was serving for the match in the fifth set after uh, coming back from two sets down, and they showed a woman in the crowd like kissing a carrot as like a talisman. Oh. I think it was a stuffed carrot, but his fans are like really into carrots because of his red hair. Um, <laughs> and then... Finally, winding my way towards our towards our afterball name, there was a sign in the crowd, Sinner, Sinner, Carrot Dinner. So, in celebration right. and in praise of Yannick Sinner, who beat Daniil Medvedev, who beat Alexander Zverev in the semis. Joel Anderson, what is your Sinner, Sinner, Carrot Dinner? I really thought we were going to go with Carrot Top there, but my Sinner, <laughs> Sinner, what is it again? Sinner, Sinner? <laughs> carrot Dinner. Carrot dinner. All right. <laughs> My center center carrot dinner. So a few hours before the opening kickoff to Championship Sunday, I set out with my wife, Janae, who some Slate readers may already know as Dear Prudence, uh, for a nice morning stroll with our 21-month-old son, Desmond. And we took a different route than usual, passing through our neighborhood's weekly farmer's market and walking somewhat aimlessly until we arrived at a playground that we rarely visit. We figured it would be a cool little change of plans for Desmond, who both appreciates our routines, but also gets bored by them pretty quickly. As we lifted Des out of his stroller, I saw what I usually see on weekend mornings in our little suburban bubble. Lots of little kids, lots of anxious parents, a scramble to claim tables for a birthday party, and not much open space on the climbers or slides. But you know, Desmond is insistent and not nearly as worried about taking up space in public like his father. So I, I followed him up to the top, focused only on making sure he didn't topple over along the way, 
Then I looked down at the end of the slide, expecting to see Janae. Instead, staring right back at me, a thin little smile forming on his lips, was Andrew Luck. And I'm pretty sure I said, oh, shit. Um, <laughs> hey, man, with a familiarity like I knew him or like he would know someone like me. And I was shocked. Um, it was clear that he was a lot more used to this than I was. So for some context, I should say we see semi-famous people around here all the time. Once Condoleezza Rice was crossing the street with a friend. Another time I got to the barbershop early and Nick Bosa was in my chair. Uh, and our D.C. listeners would be tickled to know that I used to see former D.C. Mayor Adrian Fenty hanging out around the Stanford Business School. But Andrew Luck is different, at least to me. And I assume most of our listeners remember Andrew Luck. Uh, he was one of the NFL's best quarterbacks until he abruptly retired two weeks before the start of the 2019 season. He was 29 years old, cutting short a career that many had expected would someday end with him playing in a couple of Super Bowls and then into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And it was a devastating day for the Indianapolis Colts and the NFL. The NFL had seen a number of surprise early retirements in recent years, most of them for some of the same reasons Luck gave when he announced his retirement. Um, but nobody of his stature and with so much potentially left to accomplish in the game had walked away so soon. So here's some of what he said at his retirement announcement. For the last four years or so, I've been in this cycle of injury, pain, rehab, injury, injury pain, rehab. Uh, and it's been unceasing and relenting, unrelenting, both in season, both in and off season. Uh, and I felt stuck in it. And the only way I see out uh, is, is to, to no longer play football. Uh, it's, it's taken my joy of this game away. Uh, and uh, this, sorry. This isn't a visual medium, but Luck looked like he felt at that podium, a sad, thoroughly beaten man. And that's not the man I saw at the end of that slide Sunday. He somehow appeared younger, like maybe 20 pounds lighter, had a little stubble on his cheeks and chin. And I'm pretty sure he was wearing a windbreaker that read Palo Alto High School, where he's now an assistant football coach. When I snapped out of my stupor, I think I managed to say something like, hey man, nice to meet you. I'm Joel, and I'm also from Houston. He said, oh yeah, we're part of town. I told him, and he even said it back like a real native, Mo City. Uh, our kids eyed each other, but kept on about their business like toddlers pretty much do. He explained straight-faced that his daughter was selling ice cream, gesturing to her imaginary shop under the play structure. I got Desmond to say hi. We talked about how our wives preferred this wonderful Bay Area morning chill to the stuffy climate back home. And then my actual wife showed up over my left shoulder. And what happened next is something I would actually like to apologize for. I wanted to explain who Andrew Luck was to Janae, and this is what happened. I tried to refer back to the evening of his announcement, which still remains weirdly vivid to me. On the afternoon that Luck retired, Janae and I were out in downtown Palo Alto, a date night, if you will. And when I heard the news about Luck retiring mid-dinner, I couldn't get over it. I just kept talking about it and checking on my phone. And eventually, Janae allowed me to sit down at a sports bar and obsess over the coverage for a little bit. And maybe it was because of the magnitude of his retirement. Maybe it's because it truly seemed to come out of nowhere. Maybe it's because we were not even a mile away from his old college campus, and I expected others to be sharing in my shock. 
Or maybe, as Josh pointed out yesterday, it's because I quit football too, and I felt a sort of kinship with him, though he was approximately millions of times more successful at it than me. So I was actually trying to explain that moment to Janae in front of Andrew Luck. But when I realized that my explanation was as bad as my timing, I shut it down and I said, that's the QB I was telling you about who was really great and from out here. <laughs> um, <laughs> I really hope Andrew Luck isn't used to that, being defined by what he used to do. And I'm legitimately sorry to have immediately picked from one of the lowest moments in his career, instead of just saying, this is Andrew, he used to go to Stanford. She later told me she wasn't really paying attention and assumed I was introducing a fellow sports writer or someone I knew from Twitter. Except she wondered why I seemed a little nervous, as if I wanted him to like me. It's embarrassing, man. Come on. Um, anyway, we didn't talk much after that. Desmond wandered off and we followed. Luck stuck around a little bit longer and seemed to know everyone at the playground, or at least know them well enough that they didn't seem as geeked as I was to see him there. And maybe on that side of the neighborhood, they're used to being in the presence of a football player so good, he could have easily been playing in the championship game coming on a few hours later. But once we started the walk back home, I couldn't stop thinking about Andrew Luck and how he must have felt a couple hours before one of the biggest football days of the year. Uh, in Seth Wickersham's profile of Luck for ESPN in 2022, Luck talked a little more at length about his reasons for leaving. He said, there are things I miss, but there are things that, one, I'm not willing to give up about my life now, and two, that I don't want to put myself through again. At the time, Luck was preparing to leave his home in Indianapolis to return to Palo Alto, home of his alma mater, Stanford. He said then that he planned to go back to graduate school and talked about coaching or teaching someday. He really wanted to make sure nothing came between him and his wife and his daughter again, and certainly not football. Now, I see he's living out his promises. Um, today, he's 34 and studying to get his master's in education from Stanford. He works a couple times a week with the quarterbacks and receivers at Palo Alto High School. And on the second biggest NFL Sunday of the year, Andrew Luck was at the playground trying to keep up with his kids like me and the rest of us. It didn't look like he was missing a single thing or worried about missing anything at all. He was just sitting comfortably in the sand, buying his kids imaginary ice cream, and he very much gave the impression of a guy who wasn't pressed to get back home to watch the games on Sunday. It seems like he's found the place he wants to be. So anyway, if I get to see you around town again, Andrew, I promise I won't bring up football again unless you do it first. That was great. Stefan, what's your opening line when you see Andrew Luck at the playground? <laughs> you want to come on the podcast next week, Andrew? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Andrew, if you hear this, I mean, you are always welcome, buddy. I'm so sorry. <laughs> really nice to meet you. I am also gangly and awkward. That would be my uh, come on with, <laughs> with like ill -kempt, with ill kempt facial hair. I'm sure he gets that one a lot. <laughs> I'm sure he was dying to hear about your college football career, Joel. I didn't want to talk about how TCU had beaten Stanford the last two times they played them. And that was even when Harbaugh was there. But uh, we don't we have to get I think we open the season with Stanford next year, TCU versus Stanford. So maybe I can get him to come over and we can, uh, you know, watch it at my house. Or maybe I can watch it at his, actually. That was great, Joel. But yeah, that was terrific. Thanks, guys. And we'll just come up with some material, just so you're prepared in case you meet Toby Gerhardt. Yeah, I mean, please, guys, give me something. One time I met Chad Hutchison in town somewhere, um, but I kind of knew Chad Hutchison. But anyway, he's, he's welcome, too, if we all get together. So, 
That is our show for today. Our producer is Kevin Bendis. Listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out. Go to slate.com slash hangup and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty and thanks for listening. Listening.